Good Friday to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Here we are um, on a Friday evening discussing more about I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, knowing now where we're into already into uh, part three of this uh, book, how much more is there left to talk about? Well, for starters, we have a great um, session that we're going to be starting here in a moment, um, focusing on the autopsy. That is, George Wythe's autopsy. And after his autopsy discussion, the next time I'll be on the air with you all, we will be discussing more about his uh, personal maid servant, Lydia Broadnax. After all, she was the sole survivor. She should not be forgotten. And she has a story to tell as well. But I can tell you this much, we're not too terribly far from being done. But at the same time, it's not a question about how quickly we get done. It's really more of a question as to what we've been told before about George Wythe and how he died compared to what we've been learning now through this entire um, book. I should say this because, you know, for many years, most of us were probably led to believe that when our for when forefathers of ours who signed the Declaration of Independence, as well as the U.S. Constitution, we are led to believe that all of them just died from old age. As much as we would like to believe that that's true, unfortunately, that's not always been the case. I can tell you this much, that George Wythe was one of two signers whom signed the Declaration of Independence that died from means of violence. The other man who died from uh, by violence, he has been largely forgotten himself, too. He's not up there, maybe on the same level as John Adams or Benjamin Franklin. His name was Button Gwinnett. From, he was a signer from Georgia. He died not long after signing the Declaration of Independence, and sadly his death was a result of... of um, engaging in a duel. As I have mentioned before, somewhere, either it was from this current podcast series or from a different one, dueling uh, was a gentleman's uh, way of resolving problems. And it does date back to the medieval uh, times, but uh, by the time people come to the New World, and over time, as there is a greater population, there are those who decide that it's uh, best to resolve their problems by means of uh, engaging in dueling. If you didn't show up to participate in the dueling, you would have been frowned upon. You would have been seen as a chicken. Well, sadly, uh, Button Gwinnett lost his life to a duel. And um, he is uh, he and George Wythe are the only two men who signed the Declaration of Independence who sadly lost their mean, lost their lives by means of violence. So, let's get moving on forward to discussing now about the autopsy. But before I do that, I should just once again remind you all that um, when we read about our forefathers, while yes, we always would like to envision they led good lives to the best of their abilities, which I do believe many of them did, many of them were uh, dealt um, tragedies. Many of them... Um, were in fact victims of um, family loyalties, where 
one or two of their family members uh, betrayed the rest of the family, all in the name of loyalties, in worst case scenario, by either marrying someone who had ties to the crown or just simply decided that they wanted to be a loyalist altogether, all in the name of um, of sticking it to the rest of the family as to where they really felt they belonged. So anyways, now on to uh, discussing the autopsy. Our lead-off question will be the following. What exactly did Dr. James McClurg observe right away when conducting George Wythe's autopsy? Well, it's a two-pronged um, um, answer in terms of uh, the question that I just mentioned. For starters, he when he's on the stand, he tells the jury that Wythe's stomach, along with his intestines, each had severe bloody appearances, which could have been brought on by arsenic. Okay, so Dr. McClurg has flat out observed, has flat out told the jury that he witnessed, um, or let alone saw that Wythe's stomach and intestines each had a severe bloody appearance. But he said that it could have been brought on by arsenic. It when you say that something could have been the re direct result of something else, it's not a 100% definitive yes. It may not even come close to being a 50% yes. But he goes as far as by telling the jury that arsenic itself should have killed Mr. With within a few days versus two weeks. Well, that was a big eye-opener for me, not only when I first read this book um, almost two years ago, but um, rereading uh, various important segments, especially for this podcast, I had to be reminded of myself that just because one um, is um, struck down by a fatal, um, either a fatal illness or a um, fatal act of uh, poisoning, like in this case, arsenic, it would be easy to assume that one would die within a, a, either a couple of hours or just a couple of days versus two weeks. But I will tell you this much. if I know many of you all are now itching to know why did, in fact, George Wythe live two weeks when most people would have been lucky enough to have lived two to four days at best. That part I will tell you here later on, but it's very well worth sharing. I can promise you this much. Dr. McClurg openly admitted to the jury that other factors were responsible for Wythe's death, not arsenic. I hate to say this, but yes, Dr. McClurg, for starters, yes, he is a smart guy, but his testimony does show just how arrogant he is overall in person. He thinks he knows all the answers, but he really doesn't. And I do believe it's fair to say that even one's arrogance, and let alone their personal ego, over time does catch up with them. Now, George Wythe, per Dr. McClurg, did have recurring issues with irregular bowels for more than three years, which he was convinced brought on vomiting and diarrhea. I'm not trying to gross you all out, but this is... We have to keep in mind, this is real-life drama here, folks. You know, we're talking about someone's life. We're talking about symptoms. We're talking about, you know, what one side believes really did cause this man's death. 
but yet at the same time all of us who are the listeners are coming up with different theories i already know for a fact that for one george wythe did not die from cholera based off of what uh, we had mentioned from um, earlier podcasts but i also am led to believe that the medical profession is lying to the rest of the audience they're trying to concoct a whole different story and the more i discuss the more we're going to realize that hey maybe the medical profession isn't as perfect as we have been led to believe this whole time so dr mcclurg and the other two doctors saw bowels that were in fact inflamed to being very reddish during the autopsy procedure on may 25th the day that george wythe was poisoned dr mcclurg arrived to his home but yet still remained hesitant on whether or not arsenic was in fact responsible for mr wythe's death it's almost as if Dr. McClurg really should not have had any business going over to Wythe's house in the first place. But then again, you know, he has been Mr. Wythe's doctor for some time. Why would George Wythe think in a million years that Dr. McClurg would uh, stoop so low as to thinking that, well, Mr. Wythe doesn't know what he's talking about? Or, I already know all the answers, so... Even my patients shouldn't question what I'm saying. Two days later, May 27th, there was a mi mixture of arsenic and sulfur found in George Wythe Sweeney's room. So basically, it wasn't until two days after the poisoning that we might now consider like a search warrant uh, was administered to go about searching Sweeney's room, where in fact... Um, the ratsbane uh, poison was found, including that mixture of arsenic and sulfur. All right, I have mentioned this a couple of times from previous podcasts, most notably the last one, so it would be good for me to fulfill the promise. I mentioned about bile, so I'm going to talk about it now, and it is of uh, valuable importance. What is bile? Well, I can tell you all this much. I didn't even know anything about bile until reading this book. For starters, bile can be found in both humans and animals. In humans, bile is produced regularly by the liver. Liver bile, or let alone by the liver or liver bile, and it gets stored around the gallbladder. And it helps with digestion. So think about this, folks. Um, right now, it would be safe to say that bile is very helpful when it comes to digesting um, foods. Now, here's a description of what bile looks like. It, it, okay, it's fluid. It's, in humans, it takes on a greenish or a yellowish um, fluid um, context. And as I said before, a moment ago, bile helps with digestion, but it helps most importantly of all, to break down fats, to helping absorb fat in the form of uh, soluble vitamins. So this is actually a, a good thing, folks. After all, there does have to be some form of process inside our bodies to help uh, with 
digesting foods, uh, along with anything else that would uh, prevent our bodies from doing the opposite. I'm not a doctor, but I am trying to give you the uh, best explanation I can uh, possible uh, with everything um, that I have uh, explained to you all already, given how far we've come, especially that we've now made it into part three. Bile, or let alone there is what's called bile salts. Bile salts are produced by hepatocyte, hepatocyte rather, hepatocyte cells, I should say, in the liver. And when alkaline substance meets an acid, it leads to neutralizing reaction. It leads to a neutralizing reaction, which brings about producing water and chemical salts, aka bile salts. So there you have it, folks. That's how bile salts are, um, how they uh, derive. Now, I do know this for a fact that I can't remember the percentage. I do apologize for that. But I do know that the vast majority of our brain is composed of water. But I do know that 85% of bile is made up of water. Bile salts are an essential component of bile to where it's needed in our bodies for breaking down the fats, absorbing vitamins like vitamins A, D, E, and K to eliminating uh, harmful toxins. So, what is Dr. McClurg's take on George Wythe's death? Well, after all, you know, Dr. McClurg wrote a wonderful book on bile. He's the world's uh, leading expert on that. But Dr. McClurg knows for a direct fact that if people didn't hydrate properly, their risk of further problems could occur like dehydration to um, body, like to body, for example, where bile salt deficiencies could increase the chances of, say, let alone kidney stone formations. You know, believe it or not, folks, even um, in 18th and 19th century times, um, men did uh, pass kidney stones. Even uh, Chief Justice John Marshall of the United States Supreme Court, um, towards the end of his time as Chief Justice, he um, had to pass a kidney stone. And while, yes, knock on wood, I've never had to do that, but knock on wood, it's I still hear that it's a very painful process, but I can't imagine what it would have been like in 18th and 19th century times. Now, Dr. McClurg also knew that bile affected older people, like George Wythe, whom was 80 at the time of his death. And bile did, in fact, cause diarrhea and vomiting, which were, in fact, George Wythe's main symptoms. Bile was also known to affect those, or let alone impact those, who drank wine. And hey, George Wythe loved a good glass of wine. But then again, maybe it's fair to say that for those whom did drink wine in moderation, maybe they weren't immune to um, getting bile in their stomach. Who knows? But it is probably fair to say that those who did abuse alcohol probably were more prone to getting bile because, you know, if you do consume alcohol too much, it can um, wreak havoc on your uh, liver and other um, 
primary organs in your body. Doctors McCall and Fauci, or let alone doctors James McCall and William Fauci, who make up this uh, trio, they both confirmed on the stand to the jury that with stomach had large amounts of black bile, which led them to agree that arsenic wasn't the ultimate cause of death. You know, I can, I can understand how, if you are a doctor, how you would like to really believe that, that only one part of the body was impacted by everything that may have happened to someone, but I just don't buy into it. I just don't. You know, we must remember, and as I've said before, that especially from the previous podcast when I provided that description of arsenic, you know, when one, um, when one drinks coffee, like in this case George Wythe did and Lydia Broadnax and uh, Michael Brown, once that arsenic went inside their system, it took, it took them all over. Uh, it's a miracle that Lydia Broadnax survived. Um, it's amazing, to, I don't know if amazing is the right word, but it's very shocking to think that it just didn't kill Michael Brown on the spot, or let alone George Wythe. But the bottom line is this, folks, is that arsenic, no matter how, many, how much dosage you put into the, into the substance that it goes into, it does cause damage, not just to one part of your body, but it can spread to other parts of your body so rapidly to where you simply do not have control over your body. And it's only a matter of time before you can even um, somehow regain consciousness. For some people, they may not be so fortunate, which can result in death in a short matter of time. Had George with Sweeney selected the most common arsenic poison in the world being none other than rat's bane? Yes. After all, it was the number one choice behind rat extermination, and it would have been very, very beneficial for anyone in Richmond um, to have on them because Richmond was infested with rats, as I've said before. It, um, rat's bane um, alone had been, yes, not only the number one choice behind rat extermination, but it had been the number one choice since the middle of the 17th century. So, the prosecution is really struggling here, folks. Uh, Philip Norburn Nicholas, he is, you know, he, he wants George Wythe Sweeney to pay. He wants justice for Mr. Wythe. Who wouldn't want justice for George Wythe? I would truly believe that there are many, many people regardless of whether they live in Virginia or elsewhere in this nation's young republic, considering that we have uh, 17 states in the Union at the time that George Wythe passes away. And I would believe that everyone, not just the 13 colonies, but the other four states, have already gotten a understanding of whom George Wythe is and what he uh, represents for our nation. Even though he may be a sage being a wise man at age 80, he still had a lot to live for, and sadly that was taken away by his grandnephew. But the prosecution really needs, they need the medical uh, doctor's help. They need 100% solid confirmation from the trio, the medical trio, confirming that George Wythe, in fact, had been poisoned with ratsbane. 
But I think it's safe to say by now we all have come to the sad realization that all three doctors, and these are some of the best doctors, not just in the United States, but probably in the world, they haven't lived up to their standards. The trio could not unanimously agree upon whether or not Wyth was a victim of arsenic poisoning. Makes no sense. If you don't think it makes sense now, I think we'll be surprised to learn some more here uh, soon. Here's another question. Had all three doctors' inabilities to reach a unanimous agreement upon what caused George Wyth's death, or let alone his ultimate death, benefit the defense? Well, if you are the defense, being Mr. William Wirt or Edmund Randolph, here you are doing everything there is to um, enhance your fame. In the case of Edmund Randolph, trying to rebuild his image, given that uh, he resigned in disgrace under uh, when serving under uh, George Washington. William Wirt chasing the almighty dollar. Yeah, the defense has uh, caught a huge break here. William Wirt, being this lead defense attorney, he knows right away that all three doctors had performed a partial autopsy meaning the entire focus revolved around bile and with stomach. The doctors had failed. They, fa they failed to do a lot of things, but I will mention right here, for example, that they failed to perform other essential tests on the stomach and intestines, which would have helped them better determine if, in fact, George With Sweeney did poison his great-uncle. Think about it, folks. I mean, look, like I've said earlier, I'm not a doctor. I have a brother-in-law who's a doctor, and he is a very, very fine doctor. Um, he, li he lives in Alabama. He is an ER doctor, but he has um, dedicated his time and energy into emergency medicine, and he is always learning something new, and he would never be the type to sit back and say, well, I know all this stuff, but I don't need anybody else telling me how to do my job. That's not him. But the scary part is, is that there could still be some doctors out there, not just in the United States, but maybe elsewhere around the world who have this attitude that, oh, I know everything and I don't need anybody else telling me what I should and shouldn't be doing. If there are doctors out there like that, the best thing any of us could do is, is to not have them as our, as our doctors, especially if it was a matter of life and death. Well, given all three doctors had studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, wouldn't their time spent have involved learning anatomy to witnessing autopsies be performed up close? Absolutely. People above them, most notably the medical professors, they valued education behind body dissection. It, this enabled everyone studying medicine to gain better knowledge of how body organs worked, along with an assortment of situations where people died based, on, based upon various known and unknown circumstances. So, you know, it's one thing to have an autopsy be done in front of you, but it's not just so much dissecting the body, but realizing, hey, look, if someone else had survived the same condition, 
where this other person who died, what can we learn differently as to why John Smith survived, whereas Sally Jones didn't? So the bottom line is this, folks. Medicine is not perfect. Doctors should be learning all the time because if they don't learn, if they don't continue to learn, then how are they going to get uh, better when new, when new things come along in the fu future in terms of new situations? How to respond to something different that, say, you didn't do a year before? There were many well-known textbooks on autopsies during the time that Drs. McClurg, McCall, and William Fauci all studied at um, the University of Edinburgh, and there were a plethora of well-known textbooks on autopsies that were published even after they finished their time in medical school. A good one that was published back in 1767 was uh, written by a fellow named Joseph Lutaud, whom wrote Historia Anatomica Medica, a two-volume study that focused on case studies of multiple autopsies. The three doctors appeared to not be on the same page as everyone else was in the medical profession. That's a no-brainer right there. But what's even more frightening and disturbing is that all three of these men had accessibility to various European medical texts in America before and around the time of Wythe's death. So even if they may not have been 100% experts on arsenic poisoning and what factors contributed to arsenic poisoning, they had plenty of means to consult those whom did. After all, there were a couple of um, professionals in the United States who did give lectures on um, performing uh, procedures where a victim had um, inhaled arsenic. The bottom line is this, folks, is that there was plenty of stuff to go around to give these three doctors all the necessary ammunition to better prepare themselves for anything unexpected, big and small. And George Wythe's case should have served as a good example of something new that they did not know had existed before. Besides not keeping up to date on all books published regarding recent medical advances to autopsy-related procedural matters, what else had the medical trio assigned to George Wythe not perform? They didn't perform a multitude of tests that could have gone about determining that George Wythe and his 16-year-old uh, protege student Michael Brown had indeed died from arsenic poisoning. I'm going to uh, share with you all right now some tests that uh, Bruce Chadwick, whom is the author of I Am Murdered, um, has, revealed, has uh, shared. There was the standard test, which involved placing underwater in a, in a liquid mixture, what we call solution, pieces of flesh cut from one's body, that is an autopsy body, that included bubbling hydrogen sulfide gas through mixture. If the flesh showed arsenic, there would be a yellow precipitate, or leftover sediment, being none other than arsenic sulfide. 
This standard uh, test, what we might call the 101 basic of tests, had been used for years. But what do we know? George Wythe's doctors failed to perform the procedure, but they also failed to perform any examinations of Wythe's organ tissue. Another test available but wasn't conducted by the medical trio involved dipping one's fingers into the deceased's stomach fluid, which included tasting. Now, I know that sounds gross, but believe me, folks, a lot of doctors did this for a number of years and did have results with it. Often the results determining whether or not someone had actually died from arsenic. The stomach, if a stomach fluid turned unpleasantly strong, stomach when stomach fluid turns unpleasantly strong when exposed to arsenic. So remember that stomach fluid, if, when whenever a stomach fluid turns unpleasant, that's when you know that the person had been exposed to arsenic. But if the solution has a foul taste, it's poison. I think it'd be fair to say that if you sampled the taste there and you knew it was poison, <laughs> even you, the uh, experimenter, probably would be <laughs> um, would be clinging on to dear life. Then there was what was called the easy-to-perform test, which involved thoroughly examining the stomach, which allowed physicians to determine exactly how many grams of arsenic one ingested based upon remnants or let alone visible traces being tiny grains that stuck to one's stomach lining. So there you have it, folks. When you, If you were to read this book, let's say you wanted to read it in full context, from start to finish, you will be surprised to know just how many tests there were, not just in colonial days, but in like the 15th and 16th century, where doctors actually were successful not only in performing autopsies but getting to the root of the uh, cause behind what really did lead to someone's death. George Wythe's doctors being the most heralded, and when we say heralded meaning like admired, respected, even though they are considered to be very well regarded in their profession, they sadly had done the inevitable. They totally botched the autopsies of the justice, being none other than Mr. Wythe and 16-year-old Michael Brown. They really, um, in my opinion, have become a real big disappointment. Were George Wythe's doctors given plenty of time to perform all essential functions regarding the autopsy. Yes, they were. However, their focus revolved entirely around a portion of the stomach that was inflamed, including bile buildup. I kind of wonder if the doctors were just... I just have to wonder, were the doctors afraid that if this autopsy took a lot longer that it would lead to greater speculation amongst among several members of the community that, hey, somebody, for one, somebody truly was out to ruin George with, and two, not just ruin him, but kill him, but two, could it have been possible that maybe more than one person was involved behind this? 
as we all know, when poisonings did take place and someone died, you what was the one thing you could never do? You could never say that two and three people were involved. Because usually when a poison did take place, well, for one, it was a silent killer, but two, it really involved just one person, one person administering the lethal dose, whether it was into a food or a beverage. That was how it was done. But yes, if this autopsy lasts longer, then yes, more people are going to um, inquire um, further questions that perhaps would make the medical trio all the more uncomfortable. You know, I also am beginning to wonder that maybe the medical trio had gone behind George Wythe's back even before he died. I say this because George Wythe, just before he um, moved to Richmond, he had unfinished business to take care of, and that was um, and that was uh, trying to part ways with slavery. After all, he did free Lydia Broadnecks. He freed um, three of uh, his late wife's slaves. The others were sent back to the um, extended uh, Taliaferro family. But he, when he um, went before uh, the court, given that he was uh, one of the, given that he served on the Chancery Court starting in 1789, he often sided with slaves in court cases. He um, wanted slavery abolished. He felt that slavery was no longer relevant. So I'm beginning to wonder if the medical profession does not like what George Wythe has stood for for some period of time. And while, yes, they may, they may have been nice to him on the outside, who's to say that they would not have thought, who's to say that they would not have held the same esteemed views of him in private? So in other words, these doctors represent a good example of so close but so far away. Yes, they may be high-profiled, but it doesn't mean that they're always doing their job consistently. Now, shortly after George Wythe had been poisoned, the judge took it upon himself in mentioning that he had hot skin, to later having cold or clammy skin, along with telling those whom visited that he was drained and weak. Now, I believe it was Dr. McClurg who said that George Wythe didn't really know Jack about medicine. After all, George Wythe had told the doctors that I've, I'm murdered. I will have to admit that, yes, okay, George Wythe wasn't a doctor. But George Wythe probably had more smarts on medicine in the last two weeks of his life than what these three doctors had in their lifetime. George Wythe didn't hold anything back. He knew what had happened. The medical profession didn't care. So the doctors didn't thoroughly check Wythe's liver or kidneys, which where sometimes arsenic itself wasn't visible in one organ, but yet present elsewhere organ-wise. So we have to keep in mind that, okay, Arsenic may not be everywhere. While it may not have um, infiltrated into one organ, it, it could have landed somewhere else and then had remnants in another part. The liver in Wythe's body was checked, but only for bile. All three doctors, folks, here's another strike against them. All three doctors 
were unaware that black bile buildup was in fact a common sign behind arsenic poisoning. The European, European doctors were at this point in time, folks, have been known to remove up to three pounds of black bile from stomachs of arsenic victims, along with discovering that the longer a victim suffered from arsenic poisoning, the redder the stomach's inner coat became, which the Richmond doctors, a.k.a. Wyth's medical trio, did not explore. Okay, folks, you know, I'm sure many of you are wondering, how, why was Wyth's stomach so inflamed, and why was it so reddened? Well, yes, it was, it was a result of the arsenic poisoning, but because the medical profession didn't really do enough to look after with, they pretty much allowed With's body to deteriorate. Remember, as I said from a previous podcast, With himself went as far as to saying, open me, cut me open, pry, you know, pry me open. I, I need to be examined. I need to be looked at. After all, I've been murdered. Somebody save my life. Those pleas were um, ignored. And I do believe that had these three doctors operated on him, they w on the other hand, though, who's to say that if they had operated on him that they would have done a good job? We really don't know. What we do know is that, as I've said just a short while ago, that while, yes, George Wythe didn't go to medical school, he had more brains on um, medicine smart, or let alone medicine smarts, in the last two weeks of his life compared to what doctors McClurg, um, McCaw, and Fauci had um, in all their years of medicine. I hate to say this, but I think the medical trio has been missing out on a lot, whereas George Wythe hasn't been missing out on anything. By the time George Wythe became poisoned, had there been an increase in overall cases where arsenic victims lasted longer than expected? This will come as a shocker, folks, but the answer is yes. And how so? This was attributed to arsenic dosages administered, which varied in size. Remember how I mentioned um, from the previous podcast about how one would need at 125 milligrams at best to um, fulfill their mission in terms of poisoning someone in the hopes that they might die in a short period of time. Well, let's get some numbers straight. If we took 9 to 10 grains of arsenic powder, that's 200 milligrams. That's 75 milligrams more than the minimum dosage required, being 125 if you took 9 to 10 grains of arsenic powder, being 200 milligrams, that could kill a person within a few hours. Whereas smaller dosages, or let alone smaller dosage grains, took longer to achieve the end result, being 125 milligrams or less. Smaller dosages, more often than not, would take multiple days to where someone's someone's life would come to an end. So just because you administered 125 milligrams of arsenic, and being in this case George with Sweeney, and put that into 
his great uncle's uh, cup, as well as that of Michael Brown's and Lydia Broadnax's, it doesn't automatically mean that these three people would have died right away while, yes, their bodies endured traumatic uh, shock and pain to where for a lengthy period of time they had no control over their body. But I think it is fair to say that George With Sweeney did not administer a high dosage of arsenic. For all we know, he might not have even come close to meeting the minimum requirement of 125 milligrams. But the bottom line is, folks, George Wythe miraculously survived and lived two weeks. So I'm sure many of us now have to wonder, why did George Wythe last so much longer, whereas Michael Brown only lived a week? Whereas some people might live only 12 to 36 hours or two to four days at best. What I do know is this, is that uh, people whom have finished a meal only to be poisoned right away are less likely to die immediately versus those whom didn't consume anything food-wise prior to being poisoned, which can be attributed to not having anything in their stomachs, which would have helped absorb arsenic as well as preventing it from entering one's bloodstream. So, if, if you did not consume anything and you get poisoned right away, I think it's fair to say that you probably would maybe die a little bit sooner compared to someone who had consumed food. After all, folks, you know, George With, Michael Brown, and Lydia Broadnex all did consume um, a hearty breakfast, and all three of them sadly did throw up their meal. I'm not trying to discuss, to gross anybody out, but that that's what happened. And had they had maybe it's fair to say that had all three of these people not consumed anything, that they might have died a lot sooner. Unfortunately. I mean, they in the case with Michael Brown, he probably could have ended up dying saying 12 to 36 hours or one to two days at best. And maybe for Mr. With, same thing. Did George, well, this is a no-brainer, folks, but I'm going to just say it. Is it fair to say that George With's doctors failed him in every way possible? Yes. If anybody would say differently, all I would have to say is something's not right with those individuals if they truly felt that George With's doctors had not failed him. But yes, I would have to totally say for 100% assurance that the medical profession failed him. The medical trio assigned to Mr. With did not demonstrate any passion in terms of in terms of um, their job, in terms of their you know, what do you call it? When you're passionate about your job, you care about what you do. You care about going above and beyond to ensure that a customer walks away feeling satisfied knowing that he or she will come back and use your services again. Well, if you're a patient and you were being operated on, wouldn't you want to believe that the doctors operating on you are going to do a good job? Because after all, you want to come out of surgery alive. Anybody would. 
and and if and if you do come out alive, well, that's certainly um, a blessing onto itself. But we also want to feel good knowing that the doctors did the right job. They went above and beyond to correct it. Because if they didn't, would you go back to use those doctors again? Absolutely not. Um, I can point out a good example here. Um, my uh, grandfather, um, he passed away 15 years ago, but long story short, uh, back in the late 1980s, I remember he had bypass surgery. I believe he, it was double bypass. And he was very fortunate to have been um, alive at the time when bypass surgery was taking place because if this had been uh, 10 years earlier, I'm not sure he would have would have made it, in large part because the um, medical technology uh, or just the resources alone were not um, up, to, um, up to date, let's put it this way. But what I can tell you is this, is that he was operated by some of the... Um, best doctors in the uh, Richmond uh, area and he was operated on Christmas Eve I remember I remember my dad and my grandmother went to see him and he was out of surgery but by the time they got home and you have to remember there was there weren't cell phones like we know today they received a phone call the doctors had found something internally that was not um, right so they went. They had to go back in and redo the whole surgery over. But the bottom line is they corrected the problem. And my grandfather came out of surgery just fine. And they told my um, dad and the rest of us that he, that he would probably live at best 10 years after the surgery. Well, he almost lived 20. He lived about um, close to 20 years after the surgery, which was remarkable. So the bottom line is this, folks. You want to be operated on by doctors who care about what they do. You want to be operated by doctors who have who, who obviously have a good reputation but are going to look after their patients. Had the had these doctors not noticed what was wrong with my grandfather when they had, in other words, if they had waited another 20 minutes, my grandfather might not have made it out alive. So it's all about being in the right place at the right time. And I just wish that for George With he had gotten better medical care because the doctors had two weeks to figure this out. Maybe not so much two weeks, maybe even days. But the longer George With was alive, the more time was squandered. The, yes, these doctors obviously did not have any commitment. They also failed to use every known resource available that could have saved George With's life to determining what was and wasn't responsible behind the judge's death. Even if he had not lived, they still could have used every available resource in determining what truly was responsible, but they didn't want to apply themselves, so that's, that was their fault. Now, um, as for the defense, I think the defense has been uh, enjoying this. Scary to think, but they have been enjoying it. Was William Wirt, the lead defense attorney, shocked by the medical trio's performance on the stand? No. And I'm going to tell you all some information that's going to knock your all socks off for the not-so-good reasons. It's scary, but this did happen. William Wirt obtained information from a fellow named Thomas Cabell, 
who is the governor of Virginia at this time. Governor Cabell committed a huge violation. I don't even know if it was considered a violation for its time, but in today's time it would be. He interfered with the autopsy. Dr. McClurg, who is obviously very egotistical and ignorant, decides that it was appropriate to share sensitive information regarding Mr. Wythe's autopsy to Governor Cabell. I see this, or I, I viewed it as an egregious act of ethical conduct. Do any of you all know what egregious means? I learned about it 15 years ago when the Duke lacrosse scandal came on the news. And that um, disgraced lawyer, Mike Nifong, who was the district attorney for uh, the city of Durham, who uh, ruined the Duke lacrosse team, he made several egregious remarks about the Duke lacrosse team. He made egregious remarks about the three players who were accused, and also about their backgrounds and about the lawyers representing them. Egregious is another word for inappropriate, or let alone inappropriate uh, conduct, inappropriate activity. Of course, Mike Nifong got disbarred for uh, that whole uh, fiasco, and rightfully so. I, I, I wish that um, Drs. McClurg, Fauci, and uh, McCall had their uh, medical licenses revoked, because after all, they did a, a shoddy job with uh, George Wythe's uh, autopsy. But William Wirt, but to make matters worse, William Wirt and Thomas Cabell are related to one another. How so? They're brother-in-laws. William Wirt knew from the start that Wythe's autopsy never revealed the true cause of death. And to think that family has been involved in this trial. After all, Philip Norburn Nicholas, the lead prosecutor, his son-in-law is on the defense, Edmund Randolph. This, this is not a good situation. I mean, it's... It's bad enough that Philip Norburn Nicholas is doing everything there is to sway the jury in believing that George Wythe was in fact murdered by his uh, deranged black sheep nephew, but it's bad enough that he's got um, the medical profession um, not being um, helpful, that they are acting very ignorant, that they don't really seem to care about George Wythe or let alone anybody else who would have been in his shoes who died a tragic death. You know, yes, George with Sweeney, Ratsbane poison was found in his room at his great-uncle's home, and while, yes, he had possession of this poison, or Ratsbane arsenic, the jury does not have the power to hang someone for possessing rat poison, even if it were illegal. Uh, a while back from a previous podcast, I had mentioned about how this uh, ratsbane poison, while illegal, um, farm druggists in Richmond wrote prescriptions for it left and right because they knew that there was such a bad rat infestation problem that, um, that really that was the only viable option to eliminate all the rats. But who's to say that everyone in their house truly did have a rat problem? George Wythe Sweeney didn't have a rat problem. Mr. Wythe never revealed about rat problems in Shaco Hill. Sure, there could have been maybe one rat, but there weren't 50 rats roaming around. So, 
even if the jury did have the power to hang someone for possessing rat poison, even if it if it's illegal, guess what else the jury would have to do? They would have to punish everyone else for possessing an illegal substance like rat's bane poison. You know, yes, the medical profession had all had every power, every uh, capability to conduct chemical tests to determine in whether or not, or if in fact, George Wythe had been poisoned by arsenic. And the same for Michael Brown. They had all the chemical tests available. But if chemical tests alone aren't going to uh, cut this in terms of determining whether or not George Wythe Sweeney is guilty, you really only have one other viable option, and that is eyewitness testimony. Who's going to be the one that could be the smoking gun that could put George Wythe, in, George Wythe Sweeney in prison for a long time, or let alone hang the sucker? It would be none other than George Wythe's personal maidservant, Lydia Broadnax, the sole survivor of the horrific circumstances that took place on May 25, 1806. When I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to be discussing about Lydia Broadnax. She is a very unique uh, person. George Wythe reveres her. She revered him. She even enjoyed taking care of him in his later years of life. But I do have to wonder, will Lydia Broadnax be able to go on the stand and testify? And if she does... Will anybody truly take her word? After all, she did tell Mayor Duval what had happened. She told the medical profession, being this medical trio, what happened. She told Philip Norburn Nicholas what took place. Mayor Duval, it seems like, has taken her word. The Philip Norburn Nicholas has. I wonder if the defense would be interested in taking her word. Probably not. But I do believe it's fair that Lydia Broadnax does deserve to have a shot at being able to tell her side of the story because, after all, a prominent founding forefather's life hangs in the balance of getting the actual truth out. Yes, he sadly passed on, but there needs to be some form of justice to compensate so that he didn't die in vain. After all, George Wythe did take on some very um, on sensitive matters in the final years of his life. And I am beginning to wonder that there were many others in the community besides the medical profession who were very um, suspicious behind um, his, um, his uh, stances, most notably on slavery. It's very possible and as I said earlier, yes, Wythe may have had a good relationship with these people on the outside, but who's to say that they were not, that they didn't think the same of him in private? There again, folks, so close but so far away. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all here soon. And when I talk to you all next, we, we will be discussing about Lydia Broadnecks. Thank you. And uh, once again, um, I appreciate you all listening. Um, I'm very fortunate to have had so many listeners uh, listening to my podcasts. And for those of you out there who know of others who enjoy history, tell them to come to Anchor Podcast and listen to my sessions. And they will um, 
they will greatly benefit from them. Take care and have a great weekend.